0: former director of the Institute for Human Origins. Dr. Bill Kimball just passed away this week. He was one of the researchers who found the Lucy skeleton in the mid-70s, and it was a huge driving force for the rapid accumulation of knowledge in the field of human origins, and he will be sorely, sorely missed. He was a really great person to be around, great sense of humor, and um, even though I didn't work in that area very long, he made an indelible impression on me and I will be forever grateful for the the mentorship that he gave me from afar
1: Another edition of the Science Night Podcast. My name is James, and with me, as always, is Steffi. Hi. And Jason. Hello. Tonight, we're talking about troubling transmissions, frog Tinder, and anti-venom achievements. In the second half, we'll bring you my conversation with Dr. Alma Cristal Hernandez Mondragon, a science policy interface specialist from Cinditas in Mexico City. But first, the news. The search for extraterrestrial life is something that has fascinated countless scientists just as much as it has anyone staring into the night sky, wondering if anyone is looking back. For decades, there have been attempts to let potential neighbors in distant systems know that we're here, ranging from the famous golden record on the Voyager probe to the transmission of a Doritos commercial to a star cluster 25,000 light years away. The most recent effort... By Dr. Jonathan Zhang, heading a team of scientists led by NASA and in cooperation with the SETI Institute and the Chinese National Space Administration aims to broadcast a binary signal, which they're calling the beacon in the galaxy, into the middle of the Milky Way to see if anyone's listening. The the contents include basic principles of math and physics, human DNA information, and the location of our planet. So nothing could go wrong from this. Some have talked on the danger of this info being shouted into the dark forest of our galaxy, while others see this as a way to bring humanity together. So, where where do we fall on this? Is this a good thing? Or is there maybe a requirement to pause and think about this before we just kind of shout out into the void?
0: It's terrifying to me. This seems like not a great idea for a couple of reasons, but to your point James right i don't think that that's mutually exclusive that this could be the worst idea in the world and also could bring humanity together i think that that might be the same thing and the idea here that that what is being included in this message is you know basics about math and physics information about the structure of dna like the building blocks for all of life on this planet and a return address basically is suggesting or could be used for evil and not for good i'm not real comfortable with the idea of basically sending out the plans on how to destroy the death star <laughs> and just broadcasting it out there right i mean that's I mean, basically have what we've sent done
2: out an invitation written in klingon to a klingon opera i mean that that is a good i would like to go see that that's pretty cool but really i this is scientists it sounds like they're they're you know good intentions, right? They want to make contact maybe with other civilizations, sending out basic information. Hi, hello, we're here. Maybe it would be nice if they could interact with uh, other expertise, like sociologists, like how do you interact with other cultures here on earth? And then how could you project that to civilizations beyond earth when you're communicating or having, trying to initiate first contact?
0: Oh, that's a really great point, right? I mean, we have learned so much about how to initiate contact with human civilizations that have been out of contact with the rest of the you know, planet. And so we have learned a lot about how to do that effectively. We've also learned a lot about how not to do that. And it seems like maybe this is this is happening at a pace here where that's not being considered. That kind of information, that kind of learning is not being considered. But I guess I just still question what is the point of sending things like basic principles about basic math and physics? Because anyone who could then interpret the signal would have to know enough about math and physics to be able to decode the signal anyway. So, like, what is the point of sending them information like that? Um, Because, you know, they're obviously in order to hear it or to understand those instructions, they would have to already know that stuff.
1: Well, I think I think they said they were doing that to potentially set up a universal communication protocol. I I don't know, I don't know about enough about math and physics to know if giving the basics, pr- the basic principles of the subject is going to do that. But I think that's why they included that information. So yeah, may, maybe they wanted to get to work on the universal translator.
2: It communicates some sort of level of intelligence. What I found interesting is in some of the challenges they were talking about in the article is they acknowledge you know the aliens might not understand the signal and they tested with signal with some scientists and Nobel laureates and they couldn't understand it. I think that kind of goes back to scientists Uh, speak their own language and sometimes we can't even understand each other in different
1: fields (laughs) maybe that's why we need to have effective science communication between us and the extraterrestrials uh we just need to make sure that we are talking to all the (laughs) center trained (laughs) extraterrestrials that's right so alan if you're not busy right
2: to work with the aliens
1: Although maybe if there was more effective science communication here on Earth within our own species, we would be able to create a signal that could actually be interpreted and understood. So, so we could hearken the end of the world quicker that way, because uh, we, we know that it would be intercepted and, and used to destroy us instead of maybe intercepted.
2: Or one of the uh, suggestions in the article of how aliens might respond is maybe if alien species are capable of communication across the cosmos – they've learned the value of peace and collaboration and we can humanity can learn from that there you go
1: maybe we should worry about the aliens coming in contact with us because of what we have the potential to do and have shown to have the potential to do within our own planet yeah that's a that's a different twist i'm sure there's a sci-fi <laughs> movie about that there's probably a uh, like a black mirror episode or oh. a, or a, a twilight zone that i can cite Uh, And if there is, it'll be in the show notes. But what this story really made me think of is one of my favorite trilogy of sci-fi novels. The first book in the series is The Three-Body Problem. And it is basically this happens and hilarity ensues, except it's not hilarity and it's super, super bleak. And and dark. And there's a follow-up trilogy that is called The Remembrance of Earth. So yeah. maybe we should use our context clues to see how that goes. Eagle-eared listeners, you would have heard me cite the second book, which is my favorite of the trilogy, The Dark Forest, in the intro to this story.
0: The only other thing I wanted to add is that um, I, it's interesting to me that this has funding, that this particular project has funding. It's not that I... There isn't a... a
1: lot of funding too.
0: Yeah, so I mean it's funded by NASA, by the jet, by the Jet Propulsion Laboratory itself, by SETI. Now when we talk about a lot of funding, it has a lot of funding sources. My guess is that there's not a lot of funding. I mean on a scale from like one to what Steffi does, this is probably not at the high end where Steffi's funding looks like. I'm guessing that this is a very sort of drop in the bucket for the JPL um, and so it's not a big deal in terms of what kind of funding would be required to do this. But at the same time, I guess I'm just having a hard time figuring out why.
2: Curiosity, learning about other, like what's out there. I mean, that's like human nature, right? We always want to, we're curious. We always want to see what else is out there beyond. Plus we're always looking for somewhere else to live while we trash this planet, right?
0: That's true. And I don't disagree with you. And I, I, as I've said several times on this podcast, like I am a big proponent of science, being funded for discovery's sake. Um, I'm a huge National Science Foundation fan because of that part of their mission. To me, I'm failing to find the connection. I'm failing to find it in the paper, right? What is the purpose of doing this other than to say we did it? And maybe that's enough. I'm not sure. But at the end of the day, there's no way to assess success unless we get contacted by another species or inhabitant of another planet, right? And so this is virtually guaranteed to fail.
1: I would say maybe this is just one thing I picked up on while reading it is to do the broadcast and the way that they feel that would be effective with enough power, they would have to upgrade the uh, SETI satellite and the satellite in uh, the fast Uh, satellite in china and i'm thinking maybe SETI saw the benefit of upgrading their gear now that they have the nasa contract to do the communications between the artemis gateway um that's that's what i kind of picked out maybe just the upgrade to their array needed to happen and this is a way to fund that project but also grab a couple headlines along the way that's a
0: really good point. and so I think
1: that it's really important for the authors of the of
0: this work to make that very clear to the general public as we talk about you know American taxpayer dollars going toward basic discovery, we want to know sort of where that's going and what is the actual purpose of this, right? It's one thing to say that we're, we're funding this work because this is what we want to do. It's another thing to say uh, we're funding this work because we needed to do all this other maintenance. And this is just a cool thing we were able to do with it. But the real purpose of all of it was to upgrade the infrastructure or whatever. And that is a very different story to tell.
2: Now you're getting
1: tricky. Mm-hmm. Did anyone else think it was interesting how they're talking about how like, oh, yeah, the funding sources are there. We have this plan on how to upgrade the tech and what we need to do. But the message is the thing that is the sticking point. The the like initial research question of should we do this is the thing that is now like – having other scientists in the community saying, "Hold on a second. Before this goes and and actually gets broadcast, let's think about this."
2: Scientists, engineers in that in that field, you're you're trained to solve problems. Maybe you don't even ask if it's the right problem or a problem that needs to be solved. I'm not saying that's the case for this, okay? This is like a tangent here. It kind of goes back to We're taught to be problem solvers, and sometimes you do that without consent, and that's harmful. Again, not saying it's tied to this. This is my side side rant. Sorry.
1: Although, you know, if they do make this broadcast and our alien overlords come to destroy us, we will be playing this on a loop of Steffi saying, basically, they didn't ask if they should.
0: (laughs) We are also going to be the first targets of this, you know— of mm-hmm. our That's invaders, true. Because, saying. right, exactly. Like they're going to need us. Well, they're either going to need us for our pulpit, <laughs> or, or they're going to need us to stop the messaging that this is bad.
1: I thought you were going to say pulp for our pulp for our just our our base elements.
0: Maybe. I mean, we did tell them what our base elements are, so they should be able <laughs> to find them,
1: right? <laughs> Maybe – hold on a second. Maybe we – maybe the River Power podcast mill goes deep underground and we become like radio-free earth. I feel like we've mined to the depths of this story. And uh, we should go on to one of our favorite topics, which is fun with frogs.
2: So many frogs. (laughs) That's why they all have Tinder.
1: That's right. So, you know – I live in New England, and we're going through a thaw now. We're actually probably past the point where we're through a thaw. We have grass and stuff now. We, we like to forget that that exists for like six months of the year uh, here in Vermont. But as wetlands thaw and come back to life, so too returns the serenade of the armies of male wood frogs seeking potential mates. And while it seems like a chaotic cacophony, there are differences to each frog's call. I I can't pick it up, but I've been told that's the case. And it's long been thought that something the female wood frog is hearing in these differences is informing their mate choice. But it was absolutely impossible for researchers to pick out these individual cause... That has recently changed with a new paper published in the journal Ecology Letters, where Dr. Ryan Cowsbeak of Dartmouth College and former Science Night Live guest and Dr. Laurel Sims of Cornell University used an acoustic camera to pinpoint individual calls Overlaid them onto videos of breeding ponds and matched them to the location of eggs, giving us more insight into the love lives of these amorous amphibians. What do we think about this version of Frog Tinder?
2: That video was amazing. I, like when they described the group, the chorus singing of the frogs to sound like chaotic gobbling from a group of rowdy turkeys, I was like, oh. I, frogs can make that and then you watch the video and that's exactly what it sounds like it's amazing and then you can see the camera echo locate and you can see the heat source like zeroing in on specific frogs it was amazing
1: ryan Kalsbeek is an interesting guy he's the kind of person that can stand up in class and Talk about gobbling turkey sounds, but then also in the back of his mind, he's creating a use for this new acoustic camera with, I mean, with help from his team, obviously. So maybe that's where I got my, my specific uh, ability to combine comedy with science and my science communication style. I don't know. Full disclosure, I have taken... One of Ryan Kalsbeek's class and and know him well enough. And he was the PhD advisor for friend of the show and turtle enthusiast, Dr. Beth Ranke. So he's part of the Science Night coaching tree. Well, thank you very much for that contribution. I mean, that's
0: it's uh it's an important contribution to Science Night. I find it interesting that you didn't point out, James, that clearly this is where you got your ability to take this group of gobbling turkeys and turn our sounds into a podcast, which is essentially what all of this morning has been about. I guess what I found most interesting about this story was the fact that it sort of confirmed, using very precise acoustic camera work, what a lot of people probably already thought, which is, you know, you get a whole bunch of frogs together making a lot of noise. Those sound waves are going to carry further, and so they're going to attract females to the group. And then once those females get to the group... It's up to the males to compete for them, right? Um, That doesn't, that's nothing earth shattering, the sort of basics of the argument here. But what is earth shattering is the ability to pinpoint with accuracy um, where those calls are coming from and how that is related to the ability to reproduce and sort of the efficiency of reproduction. And that was pretty cool to me. But it definitely calls back to me summer trips to Arizona. Not because uh, when I was a kid growing up we would go there and we'd hear lots of frogs, but instead because there is a restaurant in Cave Creek, Arizona, or at least there used to be, I'm not sure if it still exists, called The Horny Toad. And uh, it was a fried chicken joint, because that's a great name for a fried chicken joint. But right across the street from The Horny Toad, (laughs) a rival opened up another restaurant that also served fried chicken, and it was called The Satisfied Frog. (laughs) I appreciated that a lot. So growing up, I always had a horny toad t-shirt and a satisfied frog t-shirt. Every summer when we go, or winter, when we go visit my grandparents, that's where we would go.
1: You know, my favorite thing from the story is that another thing was confirmed that we know about humans. People love a boy band. The majority of female (laughs) frogs were pulled in by a harmonious assemblage of male voices. And then they would, you know... Have feats of strength afterward, which maybe we should we should work into our boy band concerts in the future. So what you're saying here is
0: that all of the females are moving in one direction, in sync, till their body temperatures reach 98 degrees. Oh. it's at that point that the boys become men. <laughs> yeah.
1: Well, I. I, obviously, I, I can't top that. So we're just going to move on to our final story here in the news, and we're going to talk about the anti-venom achievements of Mexico. In 1995, the son of the Mexican president, Ernesto Zedillo, nearly died from a scorpion sting. And that singular event sparked a national effort to increase anti venom production, train healthcare workers in their use, and educate rural communities in treatment options. And over the next 12 years, snakebite mortality decreased by 66%, and scorpion mortality fell by 83%. Along the way, Mexico became a leader in anti venom research and production. And in an article by Brent Crane in National Geographic, every level of this industry is covered, from the ranchers that collect horse plasma to the researchers that are working on ways to create anti-venom tailored to specific species, painting a picture of what can happen when government and science work together, creating a result that could be duplicated in other countries that would be a huge benefit to rural areas and developing nations. So what do we think about this? We have good evidence that when science and government and industry all come together for a common goal, we have a deliverable result that the public can benefit from.
2: I found this article fascinating because I had no idea how anti-venom was created.
1: When they opened with like the breakdown of ducks and chickens and – over 150 horses, it's like, where are they going with this? Yeah. Are the chickens the important one? Are the horses the important one?
0: Yeah, the horses are very interesting here because they're used to create the, the anti-venom, right? The antibodies against the venom. And so progressively, these horses are injected with small amounts of the venom, basically in order to create you know a robust response, but not kill them. And so the idea here is that if you give them a little bit at a time... Um, they're going to start to create these antibodies and eventually they'll be immune to it, um, to any sort of venomous interaction here. And so take these horses, create these this anti-venom, then they can bleed the horses um, on a regular sort of cycle and then just take the plasma and replace the blood. You know, this is kind of how modern medicine works. You know, we have to start with a natural environment here to grow these antibodies, to make this anti-venom but ultimately the goal is going to be to move that into a synthetic realm because even though the horses are not um are not killed for their blood they are bled and they continue they're kept in a good state of of life right i mean they're treated well um as well as you know we can assume from from an article so the hopes would be that they they would be treated very well there's still you know the ability to reduce the effects on the animal by removing the animal from that equation altogether. And so down the road, the goal should be to move this. And one of the authors is actually talking about this, uh, or I said, one of the researchers in this article was talking about this, um, that the goal is to move it to a synthetic realm. But at this time that doesn't exist, right? It's going to take significant investment in the infrastructure of this science to move that to that next phase. Right now they've got a good operational plan to keep um, the world safe from many venomous animals but not all um but that's that's what's happening it's 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 there to keep the world safe it's not going to reach as many people um as it could uh until it's moved into a synthetic realm and created synthetically because then you don't have to use you don't have to rely on the use of animals um and it would be a much quicker process
1: well i think that stuff like that is what The interview that we're going to share with you a little bit later is working on. It's like, okay, they've done this thing. How do we kind of progress? And it's – the answer isn't just government and science splitting off and going their separate ways. It's continuing that integration so that there can be funding and training provided by government funds, which is um, how how Mexico kind of runs their scientific enterprise. Uh, Almost everything is through public funds. What we're going to talk about is that historically it's been very difficult for science to advocate for itself in Mexico. So so stay tuned for that conversation. But let's get back to the specifics of horses. And I like how they pointed out that there are other countries right now that could really benefit from this model as it as it is just to find ways to up the anti-venom counts because I, I didn't realize – how difficult the process is and it makes sense why we just don't have stock fulls of anti-venom you got to really kind of tailor it to what you have in your area or it's just not going to be effective
2: yeah this is going to be even more important soon too because scientists believe that the increasing human migration also coupled with environmental and climate changes is bringing more people in contact with these venomous creatures so, we're starting this cycle where we're gonna have to start worrying about more people may in contact so we need more treatments to be available.
0: It's also going to affect the distribution of these venomous animals, right? I mean, they're going to be migrating as well to try to stay away from rising sea levels and um, you know inhospitable climate um, your habitats because of climate. And so um, it's it's a potentially real serious problem. and so the movement, to get this into synthetic production needs to happen much quicker than it probably is. But there are more pressing issues perhaps, right? I mean, the sustainability and viability of the planet is probably more important than the inhabitants of the planet Mm -hmm. at this time, right?
2: It's a hard balance.
0: I mean, so actually it is a hard balance. And actually I want to be very clear. You know, people talk about how the, you know, climate change could disrupt this planet um, and, you know, it, you know, some people are very, um, sensationalist in that regard and say, well, it's going to bring about the, dis- you know, the destruction of our planet. Well, that's not true. Our planet will survive. Our planet will actually fix itself. What won't survive is our species on this planet, right? And that's really ultimately why we need to mitigate all of the, um, all of the known climate change issues that, that, that we've already identified, um, We know that that is leading toward an inhospitable place for us to continue our survival as a species. And that includes many of the other species that already live on this planet. But should a bottleneck occur like that, this planet will regenerate itself and we will have a new series of animals that take its place, that take our place. Um, You know, we'll have new ecosystems. We will have new communities Um, of species living sympatrically or in the same place together at the same time. And the earth will be fine. It just might take some time. So let's not worry about making the earth fine. Let's worry about keeping the earth fine for us so that we remain fine.
1: I mean, that was extremely well said. And I mean, you know, you've, you've done lots of work on human evolution. So you know that the path to Homo sapiens is littered with the extinct species that came before us so you know it's pretty tough to think that we're kind of the end of the line rather than just uh, a portion of the line but you're you're absolutely right like we're not going to destroy the earth and have it be a barren wasteland
2: just one thing that i i saw in the article was sometimes science progresses because it gets personal so It was was brought up that a son of a president suffered a near-fatal scorpion sting that led to this politician mobilizing the medical establishment that led to training nurses and doctors to administer this antivenom and then subsidizing the production by federal governments of this antivenom and then actually led to an education program in rural communities. I wish we had more advocates for science because we could get a lot more done.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that leads perfectly into the break and then into the conversation because after this break, we are going to feature my conversation with Dr. Alma Cristal Hernandez Mondragon from Cinvitas in Mexico City. She is a science policy interface specialist that is trying to make stories like the one we just talked about, where we have a government-led scientific project have all of these effects that lead directly to interventions that benefit the people of that country. So that is going to happen after this break. But first, a message from one of our sponsors. (laughs) Guys, I got to let you in on this. I have unfettered access to design equipment and the ability to create things. So, I went a little crazy, and we got some new merch coming down the pipeline, and I can't let the listeners know what it is, but I have shared this design with my dear co-host, so Why don't you just give your very brief, maybe one or two word reactions to the stickers and t-shirt designs that I shared with you.
2: It's magical, mystical, probably going to sell out before the holidays. So you should pick it up now.
0: It's amazing new merch. It really is amazing stuff. I love it. I'll even purchase it and I'm notoriously stingy.
1: What I've done is is create the podcast merch version of Cabbage Patch Kids or Tickle Me Omo Doll. So you're going to want to buy it as soon as it comes up. And that is going to drop within the next couple weeks. So what you need to do is go to scynight.com slash merch and just bookmark that page and keep refreshing until the new things come up to the top. In the meantime, we got all kinds of great stuff that you can buy to support us and to support the River Power podcast mill, like stickers, T-shirts, hats, mugs, all of those things and more can be found at scynight.com slash merch welcome back to the science night podcast tonight i am really excited to talk to alma cristal hernandez mondragon She's the visiting professor at Sinvastav in Mexico City, and she specializes in science policy interface. Alma, thank you so much for joining us tonight.
3: James, uh, thank you so much for the this invitation. It's a really pleasure for me to stay here with you and all your audience.
1: So we've talked a lot about science policy in the United States and how it is advocated for and funded but I think it might be beneficial for our audience to start with a foundation of how that's done in Mexico. So what is the way that the government funds science in your country and how is it advocated for now?
3: Okay. Well, this is a very interesting question because the way that Mexico financing the, the science is a little different in Mexico most of the financial money for research comes from public money. Science in Mexico uh, has never been so important as in the United States or or in other countries. We talk in all the administrations, there are progress and setbacks, really, but in this administration, really, (laughs) it's a kind of mess. I, I can say that this time the scientific sector in Mexico is going through a very difficult time, uh, I must say, particularly in this administration, obviously. But it has become clear that this is a good point for science policy interface, because the actual management for the science sector in Mexico show us that it's not enough to have a ad- degree a phd degree a phd degree does not qualify you at all to be a decision maker uh, or direct science in mexico or in another country Uh, you need a lot of new skills uh, uh, new knowledge and other preparation in order to do that and financial has been in mexico significantly significantly reduced over these years under this pretext but it's real, yes, it's real, but also it has been used as a, a big flag uh, this corruption thing mm. in Mexico the corruption is a big issue in all the sectors, and uh, under this administration it is also an issue in the science mm. in the fin- in financing science so some resources has been eliminated, and that resources allow the operation of uh, a lot of programs in in research centers this is the government said i can sell these instruments and then i can investigate but in well all the operation was detained and the progress is very slow and also is in danger also there have been changes and that are branded authoritarian for example, you will think you can imagine that the science will defend science, but this is not really what is happening now in Mexico. Probably it is only my conception, sorry, but it's very generalized, this idea that uh, science in Mexico is not really doing progress in any way.
1: One of the things that you're working to do in your professional life, uh, and it really seems like a passion, uh, you know, having spoken to you for a little bit and having read some of your work, that you want to change this and you want to find ways that you can get scientists more involved. But I read that there were some pretty big blocks to that effort in the legislation Uh, of how advocacy works in Mexico. Can you talk about some of the laws that had previously prohibited scientists from working in the field of policy?
3: First, I need to start to talk to you uh, about uh, how I initiate in all this. All the time, you can hear complaints about how bad is uh, science in Mexico uh, that we don't have enough budget, that decision makers don't care or don't know about science, uh, among other reasons. But on the other hand, you also can hear the society. And society wonders, what are our scientists really doing? What do know about your work? What is the impact that your work has in my life? And why I should care for science and scientists? i concern about these two points of view, but in, in my case, I say, okay, what can I do in order to improve my work, in order to improve the impact that my work can take in society? So for sure, you need investigations, basic investigations, mm-hmm. and you need to publish papers and you need to write books and all. That is absolutely essential. But it's not enough. That is my point. That was my point at that moment. And this is still my point. Um, So when I asked professors about your concerns, they replied me that our work was to publish papers and write books and advising thesis and conference. And that was enough because that was the scientist's work. But I was not convinced about it because you can see how how the society can uh, see the, the scientists at least here in in Mexico. They told me decisions makers are fools, uh, decisions makers doesn't understand. You wasted your time if you want to talk with uh, decisions makers and other. So so there um, so many things in in the same line. When I was tired of hearing these complaints about the state of of these affairs in the science and policy. I decided to leave the lab and continue with a career outside uh-huh. the academia and I started this transdisciplinary program working with this issue that uh, the 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 money for funded all the mostly of investigations in mexico, most of the research in Mexico is funded by public uh, money so In the law, there was a conflict of interest because uh, you are a scientist, so you can not participate in creating a new enterprise based on your research, because your research was made with public money, so... This is a conflict of interest. And you say, okay, this, this, this doesn't have any sense. Because uh, even in the United States, for example, I studied the, the case. And um, this uh, Beto Act passed in, in the late 70s, uh, In the past decade, it was considered the most important piece of legislation in, in the history of this uh, enter, entrepreneur in the United States. At the end of the day, the, the law, the constitution, uh, I take some basic classes uh, about law and constitutionalism. And I I met a congressman that was very commitment with the issue, with science, because in her family, there are scientists. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's very important to, to be a human, to be a citizen, to <laughs> speak with other uh, persons that... They, Maybe they are not scientists, but one day they can be uh, decision makers, and it's a very good <laughs> uh, idea to that, that they know about scientists about how important it is. Well, uh, this congressman was very committed with uh, the idea of uh, helping in any way, uh, in any sense. So uh, we they took. Uh, three or four years, we achieve uh, this amendment in the law. Of course, companies are not created by law, right? Sure. But right. this element was absolutely necessary for subsequent actions. Yeah. I hope that in a few years we can see real changes of a result of this amendment. And this opportunity allows me to think: What about climate change? What about artificial intelligence? What about all, all this advance on genomics? What are the work that we are doing for this? Nobody is working on that. Mm. The science advance every day and every day and every day, and the legislation is passed away from the technological development. Mm-hmm. So we need to find a, a way to work in the middle of this. Someone needs to put attention in the details and in this case, in the science details for all these challenges that we are facing as society, in Mexican society, but also as global society. One of the things
1: that you mentioned that we here at this podcast and kind of in our bigger efforts are trying to do is show that scientists are really just people who are doing something, and they're passionate about what they're doing, but too often you see this disconnect between the scientist and the people that they're trying to communicate with. A lot of that has to do with misconceptions and everything, but I think what you're also finding and what maybe we'll talk about is that for a long time, people just didn't expect scientists to communicate In that way, we were expected to publish, present, and talk to scientists, not be like the front facing thing. That was always the realm of other management that weren't necessarily involved. I think what you're communicating is that this has led to a lot of problems that we're now having to go back. And dismantle before we can actually go forward. So I commend you for putting in the work to actually dismantle those things, because I think that is, I'm sure, a huge amount of work and a huge amount of frustration and a lot of late nights and stress along the way. But now we can actually talk about the things that you're able to do to... Create a better interface between science and policy. I guess, why don't we talk about what you're actually doing now at Sinvitas as a science policy interface researcher? I, I guess, will
3: we say researcher? Specialist? <laughs> Maybe it's better specialist, because at this time... A researcher on these topics are very, very few. Mm. Just in, in, in a little countries, that in advanced countries also. But <laughs> um well, right now I am working with this idea. You know, we are training scientists in the same way that we <laughs> trained 100 years ago, and the society is not the same. We need to evolve. I am working in design and introduce new courses new topics in the curricula from graduate uh, students on topics like science policy interface science advice particularly governmental science advice uh, also science diplomacy and so on because we need to Change we need to evolve, and we need to train the students, the young students with uh, new abilities, new skills that never were taught by anyone to us while we were students that's
1: such a key thing, because we can't just expect scientists to magically grow this ability to be good communicators, especially to non-scientists. That's something that we're trying to highlight here at the podcast. That's something that our friends at professional groups like FASIB here in the States and the Alan Alda Center for Science Communication are trying to do. And we're finding that it's it's such a global issue uh you know it's uh something that every country that we've talked to scientists working in we all need to get better at it so i think putting that into the curriculum is such a wise move so that when phd students are graduating they already have that foundation we're not trying to go back and change bad habits Let's talk about some of your peers and maybe people in more senior positions, because I know one of the things that we find out is that for every group of young people that are trying to come up and change, there's always the group of the um, more senior people that are trying to maybe not stop that change, but they fail to see the need for that change. So is that something that you've come up against or something that you can talk about or that you feel comfortable talking about, I should say?
3: This is absolutely (laughs) common in Mexico. (laughs) Unfortunately, I am very sad to say that this is the current situation. The last 10 years, I was trying to uh, introduce new proposals on science policy interface Uh, And I said, hey, we need to train the new scientists on these new topics, on these new issues. The most of the people in senior positions told me, oh, no, Alma, this is not a good idea. And you say, "Okay, why is not a good idea? And they told me, because you are a young woman and you need to have a great hair and a big curricula in order to have an impact. People can hear you if you are a young woman. So they was very disappointing for me because you are expected to have a um, discussion in order to improve our conditions, mm-hmm. the academic conditions. And if you can help to society in any way, it's even better. So why are you against introduce new change in this uh, relationship between society and academia? And the answer was, because you are a young woman. So mm-hmm. that was absolutely <laughs> disappointing. Uh, but first, I was very sad about it. But uh, then I said, okay, imagine this, this situation. In, I was I, I worked in the Federal Congress in the Science and Technology Commission. And the president, the chair of these commissions told me, Alma, I can go to this meeting, please be my representative, my representative in this meeting. So I, I told him, okay, I can do that. Um, I was to the meeting, and when I arrived to this meeting, there was maybe 10 people, all of them males, 60s at least, <laughs> gray hair. And when they saw me, they asked. For my boss, and when I said he is not coming, I am here. They told me, "Okay, can you give me a cup of tea, please?" Terrible. So I contain myself, <laughs> and they say, "I'm not a waitress." So if you want, we can ask him, him or him. I I, I don't remember if he was a woman or a man, but I said, "I'm not a waitress." Uh, if you want coffee or tea please you can ask for them to the right people <laughs> and i put my 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 bag in the in my seat with my name with all the conditions for the meeting but only for the fact that i was a woman
1: I feel like that's a story that gets told way too often in really every aspect of science policy business academia it's a problem and I commend you for being courageous enough to stand your ground and put yourself in a position where where you'll be heard. Because it's not an easy thing to do when you're in that position and you're the only one that looks like you. I think that is a great story. And I appreciate you for telling me.
3: <laughs> At the end, for me, I, I take my myself Well it's better that they get used to it because I am not going to live. And that, that is the the thing that maintained me over, over the years in the same age.
1: Working on that thing of I'm going to be here, I'm not going away. One of the things that I really love that you kind of mentioned in the article from the American Association for the Advancement of Science, (AAAS). This was a pull quote. I loved it. Apathy lurks around every corner. How do you motivate yourself to go into these difficult situations knowing that it is going to be difficult?
3: Uh, That's a good question. Believe me, some days, even... (laughs) Every day I ask myself the same <laughs> question, uh, because some days really it, it is difficult, mm-hmm. but I think that the, the answer is small wins. You know, it's super comforting to open my email one day and find a message from someone uh, who read about my work or a proposal that I made, or they find a... Little interview in a place in a little uh, paper with uh, somebody else, and they write me in order to ask me how to participate, how they can participate in all the proposal, how they uh, learn about this science policy interface, and that is a big tune for me <laughs> mm-hmm. because these kind of things told me you are doing good uh, job, and at least one person believes that you are doing a good job. So I I have learned that sometimes you take one step forwards and it seems that you take two steps back. But in the step you took, you met new people who have the conviction that uh, they want to contribute to improve this situation, this relationship with with science and policy. Uh, Also, I I need to say (laughs) over the years, the truth is that uh, it has become a kind of beauty also. Mm -hmm. I honestly believe that I can contribute a lot uh, with the development of uh, my country through the relation uh, between science and, and policy and this relation with policymakers and scientists also and so on. But the reality is that over the years, (laughs) I must admit that it's a kind of duty, but also it's a guilty pleasure.
1: (laughs) Sure. Yeah. Maybe we're finding, we're getting down to the core of why we need to have scientists engaged in these things that make big fundamental changes for the country is that, who better than a scientist to see a problem that there is no known answer to, to, to work on that and find the answer? Because the one thing that we didn't talk about is that your background is in chemistry, correct? Correct. Right. And, you know, that's that's a lot of having this question that I don't know what the answer is. And how do we find and approach that thing?
3: Yes. Honestly, if you ask me today how to do... an uh, algebraic balancing equation, I can't remember exactly how to do <laughs> right? Because I, yes, I studied chemistry in a bachelor uh, and then a, a master's degree in neuropharmacology and experimental therapeutics. But finally I decided that I want to, to work in, just yes, made diagnosis, but also uh, to find a way to to resolve it because mm-hmm. there are a lot of diagnoses in a lot of theses in, I don't know thousands of diagnoses in the thesis that we as students are doing every year and every year and every year mm-hmm. but I can see clearly a bridge between this diagnosis and ways of solutions for this topic mm-hmm. so uh, that was uh, finally the thing that convinced me that changed my career. And in all this way, I learned that you need to know about law. And I some years some years ago, I studied. I I start to study a degree in law because mm-hmm. I think that it's uh, complementary with these positions, and I want to get a better preparation, a better knowledge about not only the practical, but also the theoretical uh, things that happens with, with, for example, law and science. don't finish my career yet, but I am on my way. (laughs)
1: Yeah, you know we're we're very happy that you are still actively engaging and looking at the most fun way forming these hypotheses that law and science have this potentially symbiotic relationship. Although right now we're not quite at that point. Um, I'm getting to the depth of my chemistry knowledge as well, but maybe you'll be the catalyst that that drives that reaction. And now I'm out of chemistry. As an anatomist, I just don't do a whole lot of it. But I want to switch gears as we kind of come to the end of our time together. And your work, I'm sure, can be stressful and, like you said, daunting. What are some of the things that you do? And, And one of the other things that we do here at the podcast is try to show that all of scientists are humans, after all. What are some of the things you do? What are some of your hobbies that you can go to to de-stress and keep yourself engaged in what you're doing and prepare for the next, the next time you're going to have to be that one person in the room that is speaking on this topic?
3: Uh, it's, <laughs> it's funny because my activity is to work in social society. Uh, We found an association, the Mexican Association for the Advancements of Science, in order to do some training programs in the future. And this is a totally voluntary work, uh, totally on my free time. And I want to say there is. Not really a hobby, but it's a kind of hobby for me. We we founded exact with um intent that in a few years we will be able to establish training programs for scientists in science advice and other topics. Uh something similar to the programs that you have in mm-hmm. the in the triple years like this science. Technology and policy fellowships. Uh, we want to establish uh, alliance with the federal government, local government, even municipalities, whether the legislative branch, the executive, and even the judicial power. So, this is a step for the future. I I hope for the near future. But also, I enjoy to travel with my friends, uh, mostly for learn. <laughs> topics. Uh, next month, I will travel to Costa Rica for a course on science diplomacy. Mm. And these kind of things are very uh, exciting for, for me. And, but I think really that my family is maybe the most important support that I have for all this work that I do. And also this hobby the, to study uh, this degree on law It's a kind of hobby because (laughs) I only go to the faculty uh, in the weekends. So it's a kind of hobby, but it's not exactly a hobby. (laughs) Sure, (laughs) Maybe I need to look for more hobbies.
1: (laughs) You know, uh, I was going to say it sounds like your hobby is just kind of continuing your work without getting paid for it. But, you know, I think the thing that always maybe doesn't get enough credit is our families that have that support system that can recharge us. Uh, So on behalf of the whole science night podcast, I want to thank your family for creating that environment so that you are able to do the amazing things that you have done and the things that I'm sure you will do. Thank you to them. And maybe thank you to my family too, for creating the same situation for me. (laughs)
3: Yeah, I I feel better now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and, and also, James, if if I may, I want to to tell you now that I think that scientists need to participate in policy because first of all. We are all citizens. I believe that scientists, like uh, all other sectors, regardless of your profession or trade, you should participate because you are a citizen. It's a citizen duty. Then I consider that a part of our commitment is provide the necessary contribution to the making of policies or programs or anything else. Policy requires different inputs, some scientific, other technical, other economicals, among others. But we can and maybe we should contribute with the things that we can. We can see it uh, right now with this COVID-19 pandemic. This is absolutely unthinkable to face without science. Mm -hmm. But also, we need accompaniment of the decision makers. We need to work hand-on-hand. We have multiple challenges ahead, and we need to stay together.
1: Totally agree. You know, we've seen in lots of countries, my own being one of them, what happens when the voices are... Not necessarily of the citizens of the community, but of the people that already have the power, already have the money. And when that's the only thing that anybody's hearing from, uh, there's a potential to go down a very dark path. And so I totally agree. The more that we all recognize that we're part of the process, the more there is the opportunity for, for change to happen. Or at least... To feel that I've put forth an effort to make that change. Because like you said, apathy lurks around every corner. And unless you're actively engaging in the process, it can swallow you up for sure.
3: You're right. Apathy is very common in academia. But if you can help, at least don't steep foot. Because there is a lot of work. And even without your help or even without uh, your support, there are people that are really engaged to do something to improve these relations. You can support local initiatives. There are a lot of local initiatives. There are a lot of young uh, people trying to do uh, to build capacities in science policy interface. And for sure, you can support them in any way. Maybe you can speak with them. Maybe you can give some resources. I I don't know. You can do a lot, but if you try to, to leave this apathy, it will be better for us, for all the Mm -hmm.
1: people. Absolutely. You know, people often say the hardest thing to do is to get started. Uh, So if we can leave you with this message, get started. There are people there that can, that can help, but, but you gotta get started, right?
3: yes please it's (laughs) it's difficult to start but it's more difficult to maintain and in order to achieve some little Mm. victory you need support
1: absolutely that's a great message that is such a great message alma thank you so much for talking to me today my last question to you is how can we follow you? How can we see what you're doing? And how can people get involved with your programs?
3: I am not very active on social media, <laughs> but, uh, I will do <laughs> better that, that thing. I am on Twitter, on Facebook, also, on LinkedIn and, uh, my email. It's available for every people that uh, want to ride me. For now, I am in Tap, Mexico, but um, there are not enough support and I am not sure if I can continue so many times. Uh, I will try, but if not, you can also find me and find other colleagues that are working for this, um, for real capacities on science policy interface in Mexico, in the Mexican Association for the Advancement of Science, am uh, also in social media. And well, we, we will be very happy to know about the people that want to work with us.
1: Thank you so much. We will link to everything that you mentioned and the original story that brought our attention to the work that Alma is doing. All of that is going to be on our website. Alma, thank you so much for talking to us. Thank you
3: so much, James.
1: Thank you so much to Alma for taking time to talk to me. I am so excited to see her grow advocacy efforts for science in Mexico and see what comes of her her work down there. Friends, you've come to the end of another Science Night episode. But don't worry, there's plenty of things coming your way in the future, including another special episode next week. Make sure you don't miss out on any of the information on what is happening by following us on social media. So if you want to follow me, I'm on Twitter at James underscore read three. And you can see all of the hottest takes I have about how bad the Sixers are playing right now. Steffi, where can people follow you?
2: You can follow me on Twitter at Steffi Deem. I mostly talk about fusion, knitting, puppies, you know, the usual
1: Jason, where can everybody
0: find you? You can find me on Twitter also, at OregonJM. I talk nothing about fusion, nothing about knitting, and nothing about dogs. But uh, but I still have some some fun stuff there. Do you talk about fencing? You should talk about your fencing. Yeah, you
2: should talk about fencing.
0: Occasionally I talk about fencing, mostly about how my 14-year-old whoops my butt. That's amazing.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: Yeah, it is amazing. Like, I brought that kid into this world. I mean, not me, but together <laughs> and he's with gonna my take wife you out of it. That's right, and he is going <laughs> to impale me like a shish kebab. Terrible. Perfect. How
1: Hamlet went. Isn't this basically Hamlet we're we're talking about right now? I don't know. I like I to read think Hamlet that in a long I time.
0: like to think that my wife and I are better people than Hamlet's parents.
1: Mm, mm-hmm. I think we all like to think that, but are we oh. really? <laughs> <laughs> That's fair. <laughs> well, on that note, why don't you follow the show at Science Night One on Twitter? And check out our home on the web for all the links to our social media accounts, past episodes, and links to learn more about the stories we talk about on this show. And we cannot forget our merch. Buy our stuff, please. It's really a one stop shop, and you can find all of that at cynite.com. That is S C I N I G H T.com. That's all we have for you tonight. We'll be back with a special episode on Wednesday, May the 4th. And until then, have a great night. The Science Night Podcast is a proud member of the River Power Podcast Mill. To find out more about our shows, go to riverpower.xyz.
2: that's basketball the sixers
1: yeah the philadelphia 1776ers
2: that's where the sixers come from Mm 1770 oh i didn't know that
1: because of because that whole america thing
2: yeah i'm learning okay